This week on the show, we cover OpenBSD 6.8 and the 25th anniversary of OpenBSD. NetBSD 9.1 has also been released. We have Alan talk uh, about the OpenZFS Dev Summit and the exciting things that came and happened there. The BastilleBSD's native container framework for uh, FreeBSD is what we mentioned. We have an article by Dan Langell talking about cleaning up old Tarsnap backups, Michael W. Lucas's book sale, and other things that he's doing, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 374, OpenBSD's 25th anniversary, recorded for 21st of October 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoid. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome, cats and dogs and all the other humans out there that are listening to this episode. Uh, we have, of course, great headlines for you, starting off with a little bit of a celebration because, as you heard from the title, OpenBSD's 25th anniversary has arrived. And to celebrate that, kind of, uh, they released OpenBSD 6.8. Yeah, so back on October 18th, which is uh, recently when we're recording this, but maybe a little bit uh, later by the time you see it, but they released uh, OpenBSD 6.8. Some of the headline features are new PowerPC64 support, specifically the PowerNV, or non-virtualized system, for Power8 and Power9 CPUs, such as the uh, Raptor computing Talos 2 and Blackbird systems. Although the Power8 support has not been tested on real hardware yet, but the Power9 stuff works, so it's probably okay. Also, a bunch of improvements to the way time is measured, mostly in the kernel. Added support in the kernel and in libc for time counting in userland, eliminating the need for a context switch every time a process requests to know what time it is thereby improving the speed and responsiveness of programs that make heavy use of the get time of day syscall, especially browsers and office software that depend on that. The userland time counters are enabled by default on AMD64, ARM64, uh, Mac PowerPC, Octeon, and Spark64 platforms. And then there's a bunch of extra bits around that, including uh, ktrace options to make time-related systems calls more prominent, support for the delay, uh, implementation based on the TSC and lots of other stuff. Various other kernel improvements, including the interrupt map to interrupt, uh, which provides interrupt to CPU mapping, uh, a way for hardware drivers to use multiple CPUs for interrupt handling, lots of other stuff, including improvements to their debugger to show a trace via the thread ID for each process and so on. Uh, introduced KStat, a subsystem that allows the kernel to expose statistics to user land uh, and hooked up a bunch of different things to that. Uh, and they also did some work on their sysctl driver. I uh, also fixed uh, a bug that uh, prevented, or so that they prevent the creation of bogus SD devices for NVMe namespaces, which are configured with a size of zero. So you won't get a bunch of zero-sized hard drives, depending on what your NVMe is configured as. <laughs> Can't do much with those, yeah. <laughs> uh, they've also worked on the, the read and write commands for disks with large uh, that are large enough to require them to access the later sectors. Uh, so that's fixed large 512-byte emulated sector devices plugged in via USB or ATA that mistakenly thought they should use 4K addressing. And then lots of other stuff, including uh, imported login underscore LDAP, uh, making it use LDAP rather than open LDAP, 
added support for the set-o pipe fail for KSH, um, which helps with error checking and a bunch of other improvements to KSH. Uh, allow you to specify the supported TLS protocols in the FTP command. So on OpenBSD, FTP is also your you know HTTP client. You kind of fetch your wget or curl or whatever. So it allows you to specify what TLS protocols you want to use. Uh, and they also switched the default pager for man pages from more-s to less. And they've also added support for the HTML output type in the man pages by passing a file URI to the pager. Interesting. They've also added a search alias to the top command. So if you're running top, if you type slash, uh, like you would in say less, you can then enter a string and grep for it. Oh, that's useful. Can somebody do that for our top, please? I'd never thought <laughs> of that. But being able to just filter by a word or something and see all the processes that match that in top would be like amazing. Oh, yes. Yeah. So yes, we need to steal that like yesterday. It's yeah, BSD code. So fairly good on that front. Well, I, I don't know how related the different top implementations are, honestly. It's, it was a weird question because there was an upstream for top and then it went away, but then it kind of came back and oh. I don't know. But hmm. somehow, some way, we need that kind of grep search stuff. Like, you know, when you're in a man page, right? And it's man pipe to less, you type oh. slash foo and it searches for foo. Uh, sure. Just like in VI or whatever. Um, definitely need that in top. In fact, if somebody's at it, uh, making that work interactively for gstat. So gstat, you can do dash F to set a filter on the command line, but once it's running, you can't. And what if I want to change it while it's running? Mm. Like well, I can exit and restart it. It's not a big deal, but it would be cool. <laughs> anyway, uh, of course, you know, with every OpenBSD, the summarized change log is huge. And then they have the full change log, which is even bigger. Yeah, there's but, a lot of details. Uh, you know, it includes OpenSSH 8.4 and all those updates, LibreSSL 3.2.2 and all those updates, uh, the latest OpenSMTPD, some improvements to VMM slash VMD, which is their hypervisor, which apparently looks like they have Spark 64 virtualization improvements in there, which is cool. Bunch of updates to Tmux, uh, IPsec, uh, their routing daemon and other user network and stuff got a whole bunch of improvements. Um, they have some other security improvements. They added a rb underscore good random which is passed from the bootloader to the kernel uh in the boot how to part of the boot code indicating confidence that a great seed was loaded so that way the kernel knows whether it needs it can if the random number generator has enough uh seed to start with or not introduced the detection of etc slash random dot seed uh for any reuse so that it doesn't accidentally get used twice uh rewrote the entropy and queuing ring to collect uh damage asynchronously and adapt the DQ to mix a selection of the best ring entries, uh, exponentially backing off the DQ time to compensate rapidly for weak seeding in you know, unidentifiable conditions and ensure the quality of the ARC4 random output uh, very early in the boot process. Oh, good. They also enabled PAN or privileged access never on the ARM64 CPUs that support it. Uh, they've also skipped scanning file systems, which are both no dev and no set UID for set UID and set group ID files as part of the security periodic. That's definitely an interesting one because uh, I would that would be an interesting way to deal with that on FreeBSD too. Is you know, if I set a certain file system to have no set UID, uh, then 
or set UID equals off, I think is in ZFS, that would make the find periodic jobs skip scanning that one. Uh, and that would save a lot of time. Uh, and save me having to go and add those to the list of excludes in the periodic config if I could just configure it by setting it in the file system in ZFS. I like that idea too. See, even if you don't use OpenBSD, it's interesting to read their change logs just because it has lots of cool ideas in it. Oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, they also have improvements to FFS2, their version of the file system, uh, improvements to their installer. Uh, for example, they changed the install images uh, that were called .fs to .img to accommodate some UEFI bootloaders that didn't like .fs. Uh, and they also forced long names on MS-DOS file names for install boot on most 32-bit architectures because, uh, again, don't want to confuse the UEFI bootloaders. They also converted Mac, PowerPC, Octeon, and Longsong to use the machine-independent install boot rather than their previous way of doing it. And, you know, lots of network and wireless improvements, ARM64 and ARMv7 hardware improvements. OpenBSD now boots on the Odroid C4 with the power domain from the AMLDW USB and so on. The Pinebook Pro display now has all 256 levels of brightness, thanks to borrowing some of the flattened device tree stuff from Linux. And they also ported NetBSD's ARM64 disassembler, so the DDB, the debugger built into OpenBSD for the kernel, can now actually understand ARM64 assembly and disassemble it. Oh, cool. Lots of good stuff in here. Anyway, uh, it's worth checking out OpenBSD 6.8. Yep. And don't forget the song, Hacker People. And uh, yeah, congratulations to OpenBSD on their 25th anniversary. Next up, we have uh, news from NetBSD as well. 9.1 has been released. We covered uh, at least one release candidate before uh, in an earlier episode, but today is the day, or at least October 18th, the announcement went out. NetBSD 9.1 is available. And of course, they're pleased to announce the release and they highlight the following things. Uh, parallelized disk encryption with the CGD. They added the CUTF-8 locale so that you have uh, Unicode everywhere, I guess, in, in the C um, locale. Uh, then they added support for Zen 4.13 and have various reliability fixes and improvements for ZFS. Good to have those. They added support for ZFS on DK wedges on LD. And they got updates to the NVMM hypervisor, bringing the improved uh, emulation performance and stability. They got additional settings for the NPF, the new PF firewall, or the NetBSD PF firewall, uh, updated documentation, and various NPFCTL usability improvements. They also improved X11 uh, with the default window manager switch to CTWM, uh, enabled uh, Sixel support in XM. Is that Sixel or Pixel? Good question. Uh, <laughs> fixes for all the chipsets uh, from Intel, so that is also um, gone quasi. Uh, the the fixes are not there. Uh, the, the fixes are there, the box not anymore. So this way around. Um, <laughs> stability improvements for LFS, the BSD lock structured file system. They also added support for using the USB security keys in raw mode, usable in Firefox and other applications. Oh, that's good. They added support for more hardware RNGs in the entropy subsystem, including those in all winner and rock chip system on chips. Uh, audio uh, system fixes, so there is some uh, NetBSD 7 and OSSV4 compatibility edge cases fixed, and some more. Um, they improved default input behavior for Lenovo ThinkPads with ClickPads and TrackPoints. Oh yes, a lot of laptop, laptop people will like that. 
Uh, there is Aquentia 10 gigabit Ethernet adapters available with drivers now, so you can use those. And uh, oh wow, there's plenty of stuff. Yeah. Um, there is what else is good? Uh, improved output in last login W and Cal and added a show subcommand to HD audio CTL, as well as a frame buffer console performance improvement on AMD64 early in the boot process, making AMD64 boot faster. Ah, people will love that. And they will get used to it so much. Quick booting or making things faster, you get used to that so so quickly. Um, and more built-in keyboard layouts for WSCons, Brazilian, Portuguese, Estonian, Icelandic, and Latin American Spanish. Ah, good. So more support for languages is good to have. And there are some installation changes you should be aware of. The AMD64 UEFI install image for USB drives, SD cards, etc. was renamed to simply install image for these releases since it's misleading always um, and supported both UEFI and non-UEFI systems. So that's a bit of a get to know NetBSD anew. The EVB uh, ARM install instructions were updated to reflect the reality of modern NetBSD support for ARCH64 and ARMv7. Uh, the afterboot man page was updated with new information and many sysinst bugs were fixed in the man page. So that is a fresh new read for you. There is, of course, instructions how you get NetBSD and uh, acknowledgements at the end for everyone who helped make this release possible. Um, not only those who contributed code, but also hardware, documentation, funds, co-location for the servers, web pages, other documents. There is plenty of stuff. Release engineering. So all these people help make NetBSD possible. And if you like NetBSD, then you could consider or yeah, should make a donation to the NetBSD Foundation because that helps NetBSD uh, make future releases of NetBSD. Okay, now something for the people who are kind of missing conferences and dev summits. Uh, Alan has a bit of a fresh information from OpenZFS's developer summit that just concluded last week, two weeks ago, recently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take it away. It seems like it was just yesterday. <laughs> but you know, as with most conferences that we've had in the last six months, this year's OpenZFS Dev Summit uh, was a bit different than the usual rather than all meeting up at the Children's Creativity Museum in San Francisco. We had a Zoom conference. It was interesting because we used Zoom in two different modes for it as well. There was uh, the webinar mode. So during the talks, the speaker was presenting their laptop so you can see their face and their and their slides or whatever, and they would talk. And then you could submit questions uh, via the webinar mode. But then we also had kind of a pseudo hallway track. So in the breaks between talks, we'd have regular Zoom meeting rooms. Uh, and then we, you know, we'd have a subject matter expert in each room. So we'd have, I think we had four rooms most of the time. One of them would be the last speaker, uh, or depending when we had the breaks, it would be each speaker would have a room where you could go and ask more questions about their talk. And the rest of the rooms would be filled by a rotation of the different platform people. So like Matt Aarons did one, and then Brian Bellendorf did one about Linux. Josh Kulo did one about Illumos, and I did one for FreeBSD, and so on. Uh, and then uh, Jorgen Lundman did one for... Uh, Mac and Windows. Ah, so pretty much all the systems out there that support ZFS. Yeah, so we still had kind of a hallway track. It wasn't really the same thing, but it was better than not having it at all. So that was very nice. So, you know, the conference was mostly as productive as it would have been in person, uh, which is good. You know, uh, the Dev Summit's been going since 2013 and has gotten bigger and bigger from, you know, originally 100 or originally just 30 people 
to, uh, you know, we've had to cap the number of people that could attend sometimes because there's only so much room at the Chilton's Creativity Museum, which is the venue where we normally host it. Um, but this year, obviously, we could remove those caps and, and let more people in. And so that was good. So the first talk was Matt Aaron's about the state of OpenZFS. Uh, and we have links to all the videos in the article here. Talked about the new versioning scheme. Uh, we're going to have OpenZFS 2.0, and then next year we'll have 3.0, and then you have to have 4.0, and so on. And how going back to having kind of a OpenZFS releases will make it easier to deal with the compatibility bits of using ZFS across different platforms. This way you can tell what version of ZFS it is that the release of FreeBSD you're running has. Uh, you know, it always got a bit confusing when, you know, sometimes FreeBSD 11.4 had newer ZFS than 12.1 because it came out after, right? And so it got very confusing. So this way it'll be easier to track. Uh, and that'll come up later in the hackathon as well. Uh, George Wilson did a talk about uh, ZFS caching and how big the arc is, and in particular making it cooperate with the operating system more. The way it was working is, you know, we had a target for how big the arc was, and then if the system says, hey, I'm low of memory, can you lower that? It would start working on that. But until it actually met that, it would keep getting the signal, hey, we're low on memory, hey, we're low on memory, and it would just drain the arc down to the minimum size. And in particular, stuff that was trying to move forward during that time, so if a read was trying to happen while it was trying to shrink the arc, the allocation that read needed in memory to be able to you know, decompress the buffer and give you a copy was being stalled. And so it was actually manifesting in, in George's use case as trying to do a read and it would just hang for 30 seconds before answering. And sometimes if it waited a little bit longer than that, the iSCSI device would give up and just say, I tried to read, but it timed out. So he changed it so that as it frees some memory, it tells the operating system, hey, I've given you back some memory, but it also lets some of this ZFS stuff that's waiting for memory go forward. And so it allows forward progress and shrinking and growing and kind of so that the target stays more in line and we make sure that both ZFS and the other things in the system that want memory are both making forward progress while we're adapting the size of the arc instead of making everything stop while we try to adapt and then continue. Anyway, the talk explains it much better than I'm going to shortly. Uh, then George uh, Monicus shared his work on persistent L2 arc, how he made the L2 arc be able to survive a reboot and get reloaded when you boot. Yes. Uh, and some performance enhancements he did to that uh, by using two linked lists instead of one and interleaving them. He found that made it much quicker to reload. Then there was some work on making the zil faster um, so that in particular, if you're writing synchronous data to a file, like in a database, the order you do that doesn't have to be as strict as ZFS is making it. So you have to be strict when you're doing things like renaming a file because you need to make sure that, you know, if you're renaming the old file out of the way and then renaming a temporary file to the file name, those have to happen in the right order, otherwise you can have problems. Yeah. But if you're just writing two different blocks to the database file uh, in different places, they probably don't actually have to happen in any specific order. And so it means ZFS could be doing both of those at once instead of one at a time to keep the strict order. Uh, so his talk is about that and how we can unlock more parallelism in the, the Zill and speed things up, especially now that we have devices like NVMe and NVDIMM where the latency is really, really low. And so we can only get the performance that these devices promise if we do more than one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Then Mark maybe gave uh, his first talk on sequential reconstruction. So normally for a resilver or a scrub in ZFS, we do basically you have to walk all the objects in the object order, which means reading a lot of metadata and basically random reading all over the disk. There's a um, bulk read thing that happens 
the newer versions of Scrub on ZFS will build up a range tree of all the bits that it, as it scans the metadata, it'll figure out where on disk all those blocks are and build a big list. Then when that list gets full, it'll take the biggest sequential chunk of that and do it. So this makes the scrub a lot faster by not making the head of a hard drive seek all over the place by doing more of it sequentially. But this work that he did, sequential uh, resilver, works differently. Instead, it looks at the space map, which in ZFS just tells you basically for every chunk of the disk, whether it's full of data or if it's free. It just uses that and does a resilver based on it. So it doesn't work for RAID Z at all, but for a mirror, it can just start at the beginning of the drive and copy every bit of data to the new drive. Oh, that's cool. Uh, it's much faster. The downside is it doesn't know what the checksum is supposed to be, right? Because that's in the metadata that we didn't bother to read. So it basically just copies every allocated block off the good hard drive onto the new hard drive. That's obviously not great, but it's much faster. Then it starts a scrub to go and make sure all the checksums are right. Ah, but okay. it means now if the first disk fails, you've got a copy instead of not. So in overall, it is slower than just doing a regular healing resilver, which, uh, you know, a scrub. But instead of doing the kind we do today, um, if we basically copy the whole disk and then do a scrub, it takes longer overall, but the amount of time where we're vulnerable to another disk failure causing the pool to be broken is much shorter. And in the case of uh, your typical setup with mirrors, where you have two mirrors, if one of the drives dies and you replace it with a new disk, it doesn't matter if the checksum's right or not. There's only the one other copy. Yeah, there's, yeah, right. So the data is going to be corrupt either way. So we might as well do the fast way and do the scrub after and find out about it. We're still going to find out about it shortly. Profit from uh, corruption. It just means <laughs> we've decreased the amount of time where we're vulnerable to another disk dying, causing us to lose all the data. So that feature actually comes from another thing that's coming into ZFS called DRAID. They've oh. just extracted it and made it available without DRAID. Exciting. Yeah. Uh, so then he gave a talk on DRAID, uh, which is very interesting. I'm going to dig more into that and probably write a whole article about that. Uh, so we'll probably talk about that more in the future. Okay. That sounds uh, good. Then we had lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that also only the morning. <laughs> uh, then later, uh, Matt Aarons gave a great talk about improving the performance of ZFS send and receive. So ZFS send and receive can easily saturate your 10 gigabit link if you're doing normal files in 128k blocks. But if you have databases or VMs or something that are small blocks, in their case, they have 4k blocks, it's a much higher overhead. And they found that with the 4k blocks, they were only getting like three gigabits per second uh, over the network. But with uh, some improvements, he has managed to increase the speed of uh, replication for 4K, increasing the send by 87% uh, and the receive speed by 90%, oh, uh, allowing him to more than saturate a five gigabyte or five gigabit per second um, cloud VPN link. Excellent. Uh, so one of the things that they did for this was when writing, when reading and writing to the pipe, uh, so, you know, you do ZFS send pipe something. Hmm. When ZFS send is writing to it, it was writing every 4K or it was writing the header block uh, as one write, and then the 4K chunk of data, and then another header block and a 4K chunk. Mm. And so instead, he put a thread in front of that, and it writes to the pipe in one megabyte chunks. So it just you know gathers up the data and then flushes it. This means we're making one 512th the number of calls to the pipe syscall, or That's to pipe write. A lot less, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so go from making uh, 2,000, or yeah, 
go from making uh, like a thousand pipe right calls to making two. <laughs> yeah, it's much better. Uh, suddenly, you know, if you can only do so many syscalls per second, now you can do a lot more throughput by just making fewer syscalls. Interestingly, on the receive side, this turned out to be a bit of a problem though, because you means you're reading from the pipe in a one megabyte chunk and then breaking it up into the 4K pieces. The problem is if you do a ZFS send with capital R or capital I, where it's basically multiple separate snapshots stuck together, you're gonna read a megabyte. The first part of that is going to be the end of the snapshot you were reading, and the next part is the next snapshot. Ah, oh, yes. But you've already read it into this buffer. And it's like, oh, whoops. Uh, so for that, they're looking at maybe changing the ZFS send uh, file format a bit as a way to indicate that and maybe pad it out with zeros or something so that new streams only ever start on a boundary so that it's easier. To, basically, you can't rewind a pipe. You know, if you're reading from a file, you can always seek backwards. But with a yeah. pipe, once you've read the data, it's not in the pipe anymore. It's gone. It's over. Yeah. And so dealing with that. Anyway, the other thing they did is bypass the arc. Uh, and with those two things, they managed to reduce CPU usage a lot uh, and increase the throughput by almost double in both cases. Um, if you remember back, I don't know, I think sometime last year, we covered an article uh, from that Chris Cyberman guy at the University of Toronto yeah. about how the really cool algorithm that ZFS diff uses to map an object number back to the file name, right? So when, it, when you know this block on disk has changed, how do you know which file that is? And he talked about the really cool algorithm it used. Well, if you want to learn more about that, these two developers from uh, Nutanix did a talk about improving the speed of that ZFS diff algorithm. In particular, if you want to know the name of an object, if, if you're looking at the object, the object knows what its parent object is, which in the case of files should be the directory. So if you, you know the object, you can find out what directory it's in. Then the directory has a key value pair uh, table called a zap or ZFS attribute processor. And it has every file name that's in the directory as the key and the value is the, um, the object number. And this is how, when you ls a directory, it can tell what files are there. And when you go to open them, it can know which object it is, uh, which is basically like the inode. So when you have the inode and you want to find out what the file name is, you have to find the parent directory and then read through the entire key value pair list until you find the object number. Oh, that's Which if it has, you know, if there's a million files in the directory, you have to keep comparing one at a time until you find the one that's, yeah. that's the right file. Then now you know the file name, but you don't know the name of the directory. So you have to go to the directory's parent mm -hmm. and walk its list for the ID of the directory and use all the way back up to the root of the file system. Oh yeah, yeah, that's... And it wasn't caching it. So if you looked up 10 files in one directory, you walked all the way to the root all 10 times. Just for uh, nothing. So a or... bunch of improvements there. <laughs> Basically, yeah. they used the uh, system attribute space to actually, for each file, it actually knows the offset in the zap where its own entry is in the directory. So when you're looking at the file and it says, hey, my parent is this, it also says, and I'm at this slot in the directory list. So you can jump straight to it instead of having to search. Oh. Uh, and it makes it a lot faster. Uh, it's like breadcrumbs, right? In the file system. Yeah. And it's like, here I am. And I and can then find my way there's back. There's the whole complication with hard links, which is where the same object or inode has multiple file names that point to it. Mm, the references, yeah. Well, the way ZFS worked is that parent on the object got updated every time you created a hard link to point to the newest hard link. So if you remove the newest hard link, 
it now points to a parent that doesn't actually, a directory that doesn't contain that object. There are lots of other directories that do, but the object uh, or the parent that the object currently points at doesn't have it anymore. And it, and it ends up not being able to figure out what the file name is. So they also implemented a system for that where it actually, the object contains a zap of all of the hard links. So when you remove one, it just removes it and it still has a list of all the other parents. Uh, and it uses that same clever idea of, of having the offset so that it's fast to look up. Anyway, it's really interesting, worth watching. And then the last one was a great talk by uh, Gaurav Kumar about performance troubleshooting tools. Most of it was using the tools that are built into ZFS uh, to figure out why ZFS is being slow, uh, but it also covers some of the external tools you might use as well. Uh, and it basically has a case study of trying to figure out, hey, why is this NFS read not performing like it should? Turned out to be a lock contention issue causing the IO to be queued one at a time instead of uh, being batched. And so because they were happening only one at a time and the next one wouldn't happen until the first one completed, oh yeah, huh. it never had That's a chance so. to be coalesced. So all these small reads could have been turned into one big read that'd be really fast. But because we were only issuing the next read after we finished the previous one, it wasn't happening. Uh, so with the patch, suddenly they went from 600 megabytes a second to 1100 megabytes a second. But it shows hey, how they figured out yeah. what the problem was and so on. It's really interesting. <laughs> That's an increase, yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, might as well do it efficient. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, check out the articles. There's even more detail there and links to all the videos. But speaking of ZFS and FreeBSD and so on, uh, Clara, my company, is now offering uh, support subscriptions for ZFS and FreeBSD. Uh, so if you have infrastructure that you need help with, simply sign up for our monthly subscription. Even better, if you sign up during October, uh, we're offering three months free when you sign for a year or six months, uh, or one month free if you sign for six months. Uh, head over to our website, clarasystems.com, and check it out. That's a nice offering. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes you just want to be able to say, we, we, can, we use ZFS, we like it, but if something goes wrong, we need somebody we can call. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we do. Let us tell the proper commands or the proper sequence. Yeah. Cool. Excellent. Or, you know, sometimes you just have questions and you can't wait for us to answer it on an episode of BSD Now. Yeah, yeah, that might take some time. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's go into the news roundup this week. We have Bastille BSD with a native container management for FreeBSD. So that sounds exciting, and it certainly is. And uh, of course, they have more details. So Danny Trebin writes, I guess that's his blog here. Uh, yeah, uh, some time ago, I had the requirement to use FreeBSD in a project, and soon the question came up if Docker and Kubernetes can be used. On FreeBSD, Docker is not very well supported, and even if you can get it running, Linux is used in a Docker container. My experience with Docker on FreeBSD is awful. And so I started looking for alternatives. So um, there's a separate blog uh, post linked uh, how to set up Docker on FreeBSD. So it works, but um, that's a separate uh, thing here. Uh, a quick search on one of the most significant online search engines, oh, wow, uh, led me to Jails and then to Bastille BSD with the description. Bastille is an open source system 
for automating deployment and management of containerized applications on FreeBSD. So BustyBSD has an excellent getting started with Busty guide, documentation, a lively blog, and a YouTube channel where all Bastille's features are explained in detail. So in this blog post, I won't redo the Bastille website, but instead I go into the container technology history. Then I look at the performance of jails and FreeBSD. A comparison of to Docker is not possible for me at this point. Okay, so let's focus on that. Too long didn't read at the beginning, but I guess that's for the people who are in a hurry. So there are the uh, access right pitfalls and other dilemmas. So under Unix, the administration of user rights knows only two types of accounts users with and without administrator rights, so root or non-root. Uh, nevertheless, the model quickly reaches its limits, like uh, when a web server has to be administrated. The web server administrator needs permission to change configurations or restart the web server, but has not changed system settings or restart the machine permissions, so or should not do that. A solution could be to fine-tune the permissions, but this requires a much higher administration effort. FreeBSD offers the ability to work with file access control lists, FACLs, and uh, uh, CAP SICKM framework, capability and sandboxing framework. Unfortunately, this increases the administrative effort considerably, which in turn can harm security. Uh, then there's a, a section, Pioneers of the Modern Container Technology. Since 1997, wait, no, let me back off. Since 1979, of course, change root is part of Unix version 7. Thus, Unix is one of the oldest systems that can handle container management functions in the broadest sense. And there's a bit of a description and illustration of change root, uh, which stands for change root. And uh, change root allows you to change the root directory for the current running process and all its child processes. So then a process that has been rooted in a directory and has no open file descriptors in the area outside of the virtual root directory can no longer uh, access files outside this directory if the operating system kernel is correctly implemented. And then it talks a bit about more uh, root and a bit of NSE, the networking uh, software engineering on SunOS. But um, further down, security feature or not is the question. So in Unix, uh, the BSD systems try not to let processes of the change root environment break out, like lock them up. In this sense, the first appearance of the broad term jail is documented since 1991 with the Unix distribution 4.3 BSD. Historically, since 2000, BSD systems have offered operating system level virtualization. The kernel is used by multiple isolated, completely closed units, user space instances, environments. This has preceded by the Oh, this was preceded by the FreeBSD distribution, which provided the Unix command jail in version 4.0 in 2000 to seal off processes or process environments from each other securely. This led to the coinage of the term jailbreak until 2004. And so under Linux, change um, root is not called a security function. How the user root can leave a change root environment is documented in the change root man page. And in 2008, the Linux container LXC will enable creating virtual user space environments with their processes using a shared Linux kernel. And uh, based on that, in 2013, uh, Docker was developed. But you can see there's a lot of time passed since the original development under BSD in the 2000s until the Linux people uh, caught that boat. Anyway, this article is much longer and uh, covers a lot more. If you're interested, you should definitely go check it out. Yep. Okay, then we have an article from Dan Langell, ever blogging his experiences in computing space. This time, it's about Tarsnap cleaning up old backups. Yeah, so Dan goes on, uh, I use Tarsnap for my critical data. Case in point, I use it to back up my Bacula database dump. And this database dump is basically tells me 
where all my backups are, which tape has which files from which servers on which days and so on. I use Vacular to backup all my hosts. The database in question keeps track of what's backed up from what host to what the file size was, what the checksums were, where the backup is now, how many other items, and so on. Losing this data is annoying, but not a disaster. It can be recreated by reading all of the backups, but it's very time consuming. As it is, uh, the file is dumped daily and r-synced to multiple locations. It also gets backed up uh, daily via tarsnap, and I've been doing it this way since 2015. The uncompressed dump of this uh, Postgres SQL database is now uh, managed to grow to 117 gigabytes. But looking at my most recent uh, usage logs from tarsnap, you can see that I used some bandwidth, uh, in this case, 23 megabytes of bandwidth to upload the difference, uh, which cost me a whole point five cents uh and then my daily storage usage uh which is storing multiple versions of this database basically from every day going back to 2015 is only 103 gigabytes uh, because tarsnap is doing compression and deduplication on the files and so we see you know, over time you can see dan's backup grow by like half a gigabyte over a number of weeks uh so he says you know the latest daily storage is about 96 gigabytes total. So Tarsnap has 1,751 backups of that file dating back to 2015, uh, but it's only using 96 gigabytes of space, even though it's 1,751 copies of that database that have grown over time to over 113 gigabytes. Breaking it down, he sees that he has, uh, his backup contains the dump, which is 96 gigabytes, uh, back to the configuration, totaling 13 gigabytes. Uh, subversion metadata, totaling 8 gigabytes. Some new stuff at 32 gigabytes. Uh, some other database dumps at less than a gigabyte. Uh, and another database at 5.7 gigabytes. So now he wants to delete some stuff. So he's going to go and delete the backup from October of 2015. Uh, and he sees that by deleting that, uh, he managed to save less than 2 megabytes. That being the difference between those chunks on the first day of the backup and the second day of the backup. So then he deletes a couple more and he sees, you know, saved 18 kilobytes, 18 kilobytes, uh, and so on. Well, but one of them he deleted and it actually saved a whole bunch of space. He says, I won't see the change in the recent account usage by machine page until his daily update sometime the next day. But in the meantime, I think I can delete all of my old Bacula database dumps from before the year 2020. For fun, I'll keep each backup from January 1st and the original oldest backup. He looks at the list uh, and figures out how to basically make the list of all the files he wants to delete and then feed that uh, into his tarstep volumes to delete. Uh, in total, it took uh, 819 minutes <laughs> to go through and find all the backups and delete them. Oh yeah, that's a long time, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, quite a lot of data to chuck through. So then looking at it, he says, the, that large database dump consumed just one gigabyte of bandwidth to upload. Tarsnap only sends the differences uh, and the files in plain text and it gets compressed and deduplicated before it gets sent. Uh, so now he's using 106 gigabytes uh, total and I expect I can delete some of the older archives there too. And he's saying, someday I should automate the disposal of the old archives. You know, <laughs> end of story my mantra has always been it's cheaper to buy more storage than to spend time figuring out what it's what's safe to delete uh, and worse finding out you were wrong mm. <laughs> and it wasn't safe to delete yeah and yeah automate earlier than later because it saves you time 
quicker, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, uh, thanks, uh, Dan, for this write-up and uh, the use cases. You can follow them along and the, all the commands that Dan typed uh, can be found on the blog post. Uh, we also got news from Michael W. Lucas, uh, author of fiction and nonfiction books, not only in the BSD space, but uh, this is about BSD. Uh, Michael writes that, um, so he posted his recently, his 60,000th tweet. Okay, Michael is not only busy writing books, but also tweets. Okay, so um, so for those interested... Uh, actually, this... uh, I see the headline is that actually the sale's over. Sorry, you're too late. <laughs> right. But just as so we're a, just teasing you. what he did, yeah. So this prodded him to experiment, to try an experiment. And he basically, on his bookstore, he gave two of his books away um, with your with a name your own price, like the Humble Bundle. Um, so you could get, you could have gotten Git Commit Murder and Pam Mastery for any price you wish with a minimum of $1. And so the, the sale is over now. It's all done. Um, the, is there a, a write-up of how it went or what the results were? Maybe that will come That's later in a follow-up thing or maybe on, on the Twitters. does not look like this follow-up other than there's a new sale going on. Uh, if oh. you would like Michael's Christmas books. And he says, as if writing about TLS file systems <laughs> and the apocalypse wasn't bad enough, I'm also writing some Christmas stories and selling them to publishers. So last year, there was the WMG Holiday Spectacular which sent subscribers a Christmas story every day for a month, kind of a, a fictional advent calendar. It included two of Lucas's books, uh, one called Sister Silent Night, or sorry, there's one Beaks book called Sister Silent Night. It's unquestionably a Christmas story. It couldn't happen any other time of the year, and it's also a Beaks story, so make sure you bring bandages. <laughs> but from that, there are two after effects. First, the story from that uh, spectacular now been collected into three different anthologies one called bloody christmas one called joyous christmas and one just called winter holidays it's just lucas as he, at his finest yeah um but these anthologies have lots of christmas stories so if that's what you're into they have them the 2019 version of that collection it was successful enough that they're doing it again uh and it'll include christmas valentines and halloween stories if you don't feel like backing the Kickstarter, you can also subscribe and get stories mailed to you over the holidays, but not one. And Lucas actually has two stories in it this year. Uh, so if you want more Christmas, this is how you can get it. You can sign up for that subscription or the Kickstarter there, or you can wait until 2021 and they'll be collected into anthologies uh, and you'll be able to get them like you can that uh, Sister Silence Night uh, you can get now. Or you can wait until the publishers are, or the stories are published standalone which will happen eventually whenever Lucas gets around to it. Uh, but patience is hard. And I know folks who make a living by standing beneath ladders and breaking mirrors that have had better luck than 2020. So bring yourself a little joy and buy last year's collection and back this year's on uh, Kickstarter. Or, or it says, oh, and the Prohibition Orcs tale uh, that was in the in uh, Face the Strange, Woolen Torment is now available standalone $4 because it's short. So if you want that short story, there's a link to get it for a dollar. Okay. And lastly, he says, nice. lots of fiction news lately because that's how traditional publishing works. Everything's backed up and now it's breaking through and spilling out everywhere. Not to worry, I'm still <laughs> cranking out TLS Mastery uh, and well, cranking as hard as 2020 will permit. I definitely want to complete my first draft as my Christmas present. Okay. So congrats, Michael, to another uh, book sale and good luck to your future book endeavors. And that brings us right into the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we have on the Lex Fridman podcast, I think that's pronounced, 
yep. properly. Uh, Brian Koenigan, Unix, C, Arc, AMPL, and Go programming. Yeah, and if you look, uh, the pinned comment on the video has uh, the timestamps to the different subjects so that you can easily skip to what you're interested in. Uh, so the early days of Unix is at the beginning, then Unix philosophy is programming and art or a science, then Arc, then Koenigan's personal programming setup, the history of programming languages, the C programming language, the Go programming language, how to learn new programming languages, JavaScript, and then talking about a bunch of other programming languages, how they thought of AI in 1964, what they think of AI now, Moore's Law, computers in our world, and then life in general. Hmm. Definitely and going you... on my to-watch list. Yeah, put it in your to-listen list. Um, the next item we have is also along those lines, the Unix time-sharing system from Dennis M. Ritchie and Ken Thompson from July 1974, Classic Papers. Oh, yes. Uh, with the, it's basically the academic paper format with the abstract and then the introduction. Yeah, they say, The most important achievement of Unix is to demonstrate that a powerful operating system for interactive use need not be expensive either in equipment or in human effort. Uh, of course, Unix can run on hardware that costs only $40,000, which at the time was a lot of money compared to now even. Uh, <laughs> and less than two yeah. man years of effort were spent on writing the software. Yeah. Well, it's the early days. Yeah. What do you expect? It is hoped the users of Unix will find that the most important characteristics of the system are its simplicity, elegance, and ease of use. Yeah. So ah, yes. people who are afraid of the command line have to remember that Originally, that was considered an improvement to ease of use. Oh, yes. That's uh, a lot better than what they had before. Yeah, that's a nice read. Um, it's 56 minutes in total, but definitely a good intro to the good old days of Unix. Well, <laughs> that's debatable. Um, but uh, not last but not least, in our items list for the Beastie Bits, we have using a 1930 teletype as a Linux terminal. Uh, that's as a YouTube video that uh, was sent to us. And I think that's worth a look because just to get the historic uh, teletypes is just interesting for a historical perspective of all that time. 1930. This week's episode of BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap, the uh, online backup for the truly paranoid. And as, you, as you've seen earlier in the episode with Dan Langell's experiments of the backups, you can see that the interface to Tarsnap, Tar basically, with a little bit of an extra stuff that you don't need to worry about, uh, is your fairly easy gateway into making the online backups that you always wanted to do, but were too afraid of people grabbing your stuff that you backed up from the cloud. But with Tarsnap, it won't happen because it's encrypted locally. And as soon as you have the key, you should never give it away. You should store it in a safe place. And once the backups are locally encrypted and compressed and deduplicated, they get sent to the cloud, not before. And that's stored on AWS's cloud. And you only pay a very small fraction, 250 pico dollars per byte month of encoded data. And that is very, very low for a backup solution. Other similar solutions will let you pay just for the subscription to it a lot more money. And you basically start putting like $5 or $10 in the account and then let Tarsnap do the work as a cron job, for example. And you can start um, making a dry run first to kind of calculate how much that would cost you. And you would see that there's a lot of zeros 
one before the dot and a lot more after the zero or the, the, the dot yeah, decimal like separator. You do and look at the link from Dan's article, you can see uh, that, you know, it's like, oh, you used a fraction of a penny today. Have fun. <laughs> yeah. And that's data storage and not just uh, for them to copy new stuff over. And the new stuff that yeah. you back up is deduplicated, so it's only the differences, and the data resides encrypted on the cloud, and when you pull it down with your key, and if you lose the key, no one can get back to it, even the Tarsnap folks, and that's your backup solution. Quickly and easily from the command line, if you know how to use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap, but there are also clients available for the BSDs, the Linuxes, macOS, Sequin, and others. And so there's not an excuse anymore to do backups. Okay, it's time for feedback and questions. We got questions, but there could be more, especially for some of the time when there's a little less feedback. So uh, a while ago, we started a call for sending us any questions you would like to ask us, Alan and myself, or our producer, JT. And if you collect enough of those, then we will do an extra episode just for those. And so then you get to know us a little bit better. But uh, all these things, feedback of any kind, should be sent to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then will appear in a future episode, hopefully. Uh, Lars did this in the first uh, item here and has a question about InfoSec and Handbook or an InfoSec Handbook. Um, oh, it's an FYI even. The InfoSec Handbook has an article on OpenBSD's Signify, which may be of interest for the show, and that's certainly true. Yeah, so OpenBSD Signify um, lets you, if I'm not mistaken, sign releases. Yeah, so you can sign a file uh, and then be able to prove that, you know, this file is unmodified and came from the real OpenBSD people uh, or whatever. Ah, yes. And uh, so, yeah, this is a third-party analysis of how the tool works uh, and so on, and it's basically shows how to use it to verify uh, the signature. And I think this is in particular uh, from developers that are doing some work on uh, ROMs for phones and such. And so good to see them looking at using something like Signify, like OpenBSD, LibreSSL, WireGuard, and many other projects use to let you verify that the file you're downloading and installing and running actually came from the people you trust, not hasn't been modified by some rando. Oh yeah, that's that's definitely good to know. And uh, if it's the Lars that I <laughs> that I think it is, then thank you. Otherwise, thank you as well. Um, that's a good bit of information for the show. Um, next up is Scott with a ZFS import question. Uh, Scott asks or writes us, "Hi, I posted this question on FreeBSD forums and got no replies, so I thought I'd try you guys. Is there a ZFS pool property that can prevent its automatic import?" have a galley back mirror and when I manually attach the first provider, ZFS imports the pool, degraded obviously. Uh, when I attach the second one, uh, ZFS resilvers the pool. Is there a toggle to prevent the automatic import or must I export the pool first? Okay, um, so there's a couple things. It depends how it's happening. Uh, also the resilver it's doing is probably just of what has changed since, so when it reattaches the disk, it knows how long the disk was missing for, or you know, it knows the last transaction that disk saw, and it'll only have to replay everything that's happened since then, so it'll catch it up. But yes, um, the thing you're looking for is actually the cache file property on the Z pool, and you want to set that to none. Then it won't be in the cache file anymore, which is uh, on FreeBSD 12 and earlier, it's slash boot 
So that's ZFS, so zpool.cache. On newer, on 13 and newer, it's etc ZFS zpool.cache. So that's the file that lets ZFS know the list of all the pools it should import at boot. So if you just set the cache file to none on some of the pools, they'll won't be in the cache file. And then when the RC script uh, runs to import all your pools, it will know not to import that one. Your other options are to have the Geli devices get attached during boot, but that asks for the password and you're probably a reason why you're doing this after. Um, so I'm guessing what's happening is that the pool's getting imported with neither the disks available. And then when you uh, attach the first disk, it's waking up and, and reviving that pool or something. But yes, the answer to your question is the cache file property. Uh, and that will basically let you have that pool not be on the list of ones to auto import. Okay, good to know. And uh, the last one this week is uh, Song or Zhang with uh, a first episode question, uh, of course, of this podcast. Uh, the question is, where can I find your first episode of the podcast? It seems the earliest ones point to 237. Ah, mm, that's... Yes, so uh, our current website, uh, when we transitioned, it, we only imported what was still in the RSS feed, which doesn't go back all the way to the beginning. Um, all of the episodes are still on YouTube under the old podcast uh, network's account. Uh, so if you just search for BSD Now Episode 1, uh, you'll be able to find it on YouTube. Uh, but I've finally got around, uh, managed to find enough time to set it up. Uh, so JT now has access to the original show notes from Episode 1 on and the original uh, edited recordings. Uh, and he's going to work on getting them all put back into the website. So they should start to appear uh, on the website as well. Um, I think we'll try to make sure they don't show up in the RSS feed because you probably don't want to accidentally see, oh, look, there's a new episode of BSD Now from 2011. <laughs> <laughs> episode one to episode 200 something. <laughs> yeah. But we are finally getting around to uh, getting all those fed back into the website. So they're available now on YouTube. Uh, you can still find them there, but uh, they will all be on our website eventually as we finish getting through all that. Okay, uh, that should hopefully answer all your questions or the questions you had this week. Uh, send us more to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Uh, you can also, when we record live, find us on Twitch. It's twitch.tv slash bsdnow. And any other things could be sent uh, to our email address that I just mentioned. Other than that, you will find us next week with a fresh episode. And stay safe until then. Bye.